Welcome to Living Room Therapy. I'm Dave, your doorman. It's great to see you again. How have you been? Today, Paul, Reed, and Jacqueline are talking to Eric, a game designer, movie producer, director, actor, and detective. Go on in. I know you'll have a nice time in the living room today. Beautiful. All right. <clears throat> I noticed last week I didn't introduce us, so I'm going to I'm going to introduce us first. So, welcome everyone to Living Room Therapy. Uh, that is uh, Jacqueline. She is the smart one. I'm Reed. I'm the pretty one. And that's Paul. He's just Paul. <laughs> Thanks, this Reed. Isn't, yeah, you're welcome. This, uh, this isn't therapy, even though we call it that. It is just talking. If you need therapy, go get it from a professional. We might be professional therapists, but we're not, we're not on the clock right now. Today's uh, guest is my nephew, Eric. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, you've got the Aurora Borealis behind you. Um, is that a Zoom background? Yes, it is. I wasn't sure. I assumed you're not actually like using the audio in your, or the video in your podcast. We're not. So okay, it's still pretty bad behind me. So I figured, yeah, we block it out. Yeah, it looks it looks excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I can't see that brown couch at all behind you. <laughs> it just fades in and fades out. It's kind of magical. It's floating midair. You need a green couch. Uh, Eric, you're a podcaster. You've been podcasting uh, for quite some time. When did you start? Uh, I think we've been doing it a few months now. It's definitely a quarantine thing for us. Mm -hmm. And we're 14 episodes into it. All right. Yeah. And what's the name of it? Uh, the Uncle Jimmy Mac podcast. That's right. So if people... Which is an inside joke with the family. Yes. I don't know if we want to talk about um, Uncle Jimmy Mac. He's he's either the black sheep or a ghost. Yeah, I think more of a ghost. So what have you learned in your 14 episodes so far? Um, Probably not as much as I should. <laughs> we're, we're kind of the same as we were when we started. I mean, definitely the, the challenge for me is to keep the conversations going. Like to anticipate the pauses because I, I do not want to have to edit it at all. So what, when we hit start recording to stop, that's what we're yeah. going to get. So awkward silences uh, wouldn't play very well. So I'm constantly trying to think of the next question mm. in my head. It's probably the, the biggest challenge. When we have a boring guest on, we'll revert to the, uh, the, the Proust questionnaire. Are you familiar with that? Mm-mm. It's uh, it's it's some it's some questions that um, that Proust used to ask in in salons. <laughs> I, I could guess that. Yeah. It's basically whenever uh, we have Paul on, which is every episode. So I'll, I'll, That's I'll ask you I'll... editing. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so an example of one of those questions, and I've I've listened to your podcast, Eric. So I've heard uh, the questions that you ask. And, and you, there's a lot of binary questions, like peanut butter or jelly. Mm. 
Yeah, we do a speed round where we throw a bunch of those out at someone, and then we'll go back and dive into their answers Fun. a little bit more after. I think we get, we give them 20, 20 questions and then yes. go back into them. And and you and your daughter are both very good at uh, keying in on their pauses, their definite answers, their defiant answers. <laughs> um, so, well done. Uh, one of the Proust questions is, uh, what is your idea of hell? Mm. It, it's it's stated better than that. You know what 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 would take you to the the depths of hell in, in this life? I think something like that. I mean, without going into you know straight up like torture, like what hell would probably actually be like. Probably having a lot of attention on me while I try to do something that I can't do very well <laughs> would be the toughest That's... thing for me. Like fail, failing in front of a lot of people uh-huh. is probably what like spikes my anxiety the highest That's kind of interesting because like sitcoms are built off of that right i mean they're just <laughs> watching someone fail at something is what we just i mean audience just loves well and i i never got that because i watched a lot of sitcoms growing up and a lot of times they'd have those like really uncomfortable awkward situations and it just stressed me out like i didn't get why people found that entertaining I know plenty of people like you like it's just i don't know it depends if it's if they lay it on pretty thick, then I can get there. But I know what you mean. There is that sense of like, oh, no, <laughs> this, is, this is uncomfortable for me. Yeah, I feel I feel a very like physical reaction when I'm in that situation for myself. And, you know, just you just know it's not going well. And then it just gets worse and worse. And you just feel all those eyes on you. When is the last time you failed uh, with an audience? Um. I can't think of anything like too spectacular, but at work we do a lot of scenario training, which I absolutely hate because it's just, it's very like prescribed and set up and you have to act through this scenario. And then everyone's like watching you and critiquing you and it just feels really forced. And I just, I never feel like I can do it very well. Do do you want to talk about your job? I can. Yeah. Give us a scenario and then see if we can guess your job. Oh, you'll guess my job pretty (laughs) quickly with the scenario. Um, and like the well, so I'm a plea. Or I can I say it ahead of time because the guess my job thing's gonna be obvious, but to set it up, because I'm gonna say there's a scenario where you have to like arrest somebody. So there you go, spoiler alert. But it'll be it'll be the type of thing where you walk in a room and there's this actor there, not a very good actor, just some cousin of somebody that came in there to do it, and they have this prescribed thing they go through, and then you you're supposed to say or do certain things, and you may end up having to shoot the person or not or you know just all these different things and for me like one of the things I feel like I'm good at at work is reading the person and interacting with them that give and take when you have that set script you're not really interacting with a person you're guessing what the person who wrote the scenario wanted you to do Uh. and it just feels really awkward and just just like there's not a win and I'm just guessing what you would do because I feel like the thing I'm doing would actually work with a real person, but in the scenario, it's just going to fail. And so I just feel like I'm constantly failing because the way I would approach it doesn't match the way that they set them up. Interesting. You're a detective. Is this is this training for, for officers and detectives or what? Yeah. So we have to go through uh, the, these session trainings a few times a year where they just put everyone in it and you do stuff even if it's not relevant to your particular job uh, just to get everyone through it so a lot of it doesn't really match what i do day to day but i still have to go through how would you train cops um i think it it depends because i'm sure there's a lot of people who get stuff out of the scenarios it just doesn't work for me as well so i 
I think having a variety of different ways. For me, I would learn a lot more about a scenario just by discussing it with people and just say, okay, here's the hypothetical. How would you approach it? And then you hear everyone's different ideas or better yet, actual scenarios we've been through. And here's what I did. And I, I got my, can I, can I swear on this podcast? Fuck or I, no. Is it PG? So I get my ass kicked, you know, or whatever. And then you tell the story about it and you say, oh, well, what if you would have done this? So for me, that's what it worked better. I think other people like watching videos helps a lot. Like they'll just watch videos of what happened. Um, other people, I'm sure, you know, reading and taking a test. I don't I, I think everyone's just got different styles. And so it's very particular for me that the scenario stuff doesn't work. I'm curious you, about, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Reed. No, you uh, well, go ahead. I'm curious about just your personality and the profession of being a detective. Um, like what about your personality was a good fit and like lined you up for a career in being a detective? I definitely think the puzzle aspect of it, like I always like playing games and inventing games and figuring stuff out. And it, it feels kind of like a constant game in a sense not to diminish the seriousness of what right. i'm dealing with but as far as like the, the mental aspect of it taking the emotional aspect out of it it's very much you've got a problem you're trying to figure it out you've got pieces you don't understand uh, i really like interacting with people um in a way where like i don't know how to say this like and not sound bad not like manipulating but like where you have to get an outcome and so like you go into an interrogation and you have to get a confession and if it's on a murder or something like the stakes are so high and it's you and this other person in this room in this, you know, battle of wits and just quickly trying to figure the person out. Uh, like I used to play a lot of poker and that's a huge part of what I liked about it is that figuring the other person out and those interpersonal dynamics that I super enjoy. And that's a huge part of it. So I think probably that more than anything is the thing that really seems to fit my personality well. You said you have to get a confession. You mean you you have to get a confession, or you mean you would like to get a confession? Because let's say the person was innocent. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, obviously not from an innocent person. But yeah, I mean, obviously never have to. I mean, there's certain times where it's more or less relevant yeah. to the case. Like you can have a case where it doesn't matter what they say, the case is rock yeah. solid. There's other times where it's nice, you know, you you've kind of put the pieces together, but there's a couple gaps in there and you kind of need sure. information or just something as simple as where, where's the you know weapon and you know, and that information could be pretty yeah. crucial because if you can get that and then you can match stuff. So yeah, totally yeah, I mean, it. it's never quite have to, cause there would never be a case that you would do solely on a confession. Yeah. You know, I've, I've had a case like that where I had a confession, but I had nothing yeah. else. And you know, and I believe the person, I believe they did it, but I can't go forward with that if that's all I have. Do you ever have to ask, where's the body? I've not never had to ask, where's the body? You always knew where it was. I'm not the lead on a lot of homicides. So typically, I mean, I've had to ask where a live body's like, like where someone is, but not, not an actual. Uh, I've come close one time, actually. And it wasn't the killer. It was someone who had information about it. Um, and it was from over 10 years prior and trying to get them to remember where the person had told them that they buried the body. So I did have to ask where the body was that one time.
Well, you, Eric, are known in the family, and you're from a big family, my wife's side of the family. You're known as the one who invents games, sets up games, organizes games, 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 from early, for decades. Um, and one of the games that you created long before you uh, you were uh, uh, in the police force was heist yes tell us about heist growing up i always like to make up games uh when there's a group of us together even if it's not like an elaborate game i'd always be the one getting an activity going or you know hey let's do this or or modifying games so okay we're gonna play charades but we're gonna put this you know crazy twist on it and uh so my most ambitious project at the time was this game that we called heist where i printed up dozens of these character cards and you, you, it's bank employees robbers cops undercover cops um someone playing both sides a customer who's there to do this like very elaborate backstories for every single person who was there and then you had certain goals and so for you to get points you had to accomplish something and it was different for everybody no one knew who everyone else was and like the the bank was rigged with surveillance video and if the cops did a certain thing they could tap in and watch it live and then there was like a real elaborate and, and then you were actually like acting this out we had a building i built fake deposit boxes we had giant stacks of fake money and people had to try to pull out this heist and then get away with it and it was all just like our aunts uncles cousins my grandma played so a bunch of us played it and so it's sort of half forcing you to create this almost like a play or a movie and half a, a game. Wow. Sounds fascinating to have a little old lady like your grandma involved. Yeah. And it was hilarious too, because everyone got their card and didn't tell, you know, unless you're like part of the robbery crew, you don't know who everyone else is. And she was just a customer. And we started this game and she just froze and didn't do anything. And everyone's like, oh no, grandma doesn't understand. She's so confused. <laughs> What's going on? And they try to talk her through it. And I had forgotten I had made the card, but her card was someone who gets so panicked by the robbery that they just freeze oh, and don't do awesome. anything. So she was actually like nailing it. And she never broke character to tell people like, no, this is what I have. She just, <laughs> just stayed in it the entire time till it's over. And then she showed, yeah, this is what I was supposed <laughs> to be doing. The winner. <laughs> and I think it's safe to say that you win most of the games that you invent. Well, yeah, because I know the rules. <laughs> I, I invent them so that I can. Uh, I yes, win. You're, you're a very competitive character. And uh, everyone just accepts that, that you're very hard to beat if it's even possible. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting now because your soon-to-be son-in-law is also known as someone who wins everything he plays. And the two of us have really only gone up against each other once on anything, but it was like a team game. So we had other team people with us that you know we could blame or give credit to so we haven't really faced off yet so i'm excited who, for won, that. who won out of that the team game oh we destroyed them yeah <laughs> who's keeping track yeah no I, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah we play chess.com among ourselves sometimes and have some fun yeah yes i've been playing that yes i i've been playing with with the with all with all of you yeah yeah read read i think usually beats me when we play mm, I, I did it first and then you you manipulated me and said that you were afraid of me Ooh, good tactic yeah, i love it good. yeah that was good yeah that worked yeah, yeah. It worked great yeah I'm, I'm terrible at chess that's definitely that's definitely a game you can bring out if you want to beat me 
It is, uh, I, I heard Bobby Fischer uh, in an old interview t- talking about how much he hated chess because it's, it's just memorization. Yeah, and I'm terrible at memorization, so. Me too. I'm trying to learn uh, the, the famous openings and they just don't stick. There's a lot of them. Yeah. 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 I can, I can learn about three openings and about two moves into each. And then beyond <laughs> that, it's just playing on instinct. Yeah. Uh, well, Adam, you mentioned, is my future son-in-law. Maybe that'll happen May of 22 is the new um, uh, month. And, yeah, he is a brilliant, uh, creative, funny mind, very much like yours. And uh, But he also has a master's degree in statistics. And so his, his memorization and his math skills are... Uh, I don't know if, if he uses them in game theory, but and we don't hold it against either of you when you when you win all the time. It's it's a challenge, and and you, we would never want you to let us win. So yeah, no, I can tell everyone in my family would hate that if they thought I was doing that. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, I won't. Yeah, we hate it both ways. <laughs> uh, well, you're also a filmmaker. Well, I was. Yeah, I haven't I haven't done much of it in. Uh quite a while well you you and i yeah, we, were made a few together yeah. when do we get to see these famous films that i've never heard of did jack and have you seen these films we, well no i mean reed's talked about like uh, the, all the family comes over for like a dinner and they're I, i've heard a couple of different kind of the plot lines about them and it just sounded oh, really fun those films yeah is yeah, that what yeah. you're talking about yeah so back in the day reed and i used to make like legit you know hour and a half scripted edited cut together like movie movies enters them in festivals that sort of thing yeah and then since i've had kids i've had to tone it down quite a bit so we'll do very like smaller and i think the one you're referring to is for my birthday one year (laughs) i wanted to have a family birthday party and wanted to kind of shoot a crazy movie so everyone played kind of exaggerated versions of themselves like these over-the-top characters and reed's daughter savannah sets up the surprise party for me but because everyone in the family hates me and would never show up to a surprise party for me, she tells them it's for my cousin Chris, who everyone loves. And then so we play out this whole thing where on my birthday, I'm just being ragged on by all my family and everyone's talking about how much they hate me. And it's, it's very... <laughs> wow. Wow. I think we have to make a movie, Jacqueline would read. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, yeah. we're going to take oh. the next level. Well, you, the, the thing about Eric is that he's a hard worker. And so he did all the work in, in the in the in the films that we that we work on okay and so it sounds yeah, like we, we don't have an eric we don't have and an eric jacqueline can yeah i thought with an iphone with the commercial we just put the iphone up and let it go isn't that the way the commercial works and we just yeah, real films are, are are all about editing so it's, it's a lot easier now though than it was back when we did it for sure yeah but you uploaded half or a, a portion of one of our films to youtube didn't you yeah penrose was up there the whole thing i don't know i I think i had some technical issues or something uh i theoretically can get it up there though well uh that's i mean i can i have i have dvds you guys that i can lay on you if you want to see penrose was our second one and the oracle of mio cove was our first one and did you win any awards or anything or we did not win any awards no no, we got snubbed. Yeah. Uh, we got some really good uh, rejection letters, though. 
which one was it that said we're probably making a big mistake and and you're, you're... <laughs> don't quit <laughs> yeah, your day job it was, it was either sundance or uh what's the what's the mini version of sundance Slam, Slam dance. dance. Yeah, I think they said, you know, uh, you're, you're you're very fine filmmakers, and um, we're going to regret this. What we're going to we're going to turn you down. <laughs> so I appreciated that. Yeah, I just showed Penrose to my daughters for the first time, which was kind of fun oh. to to have them see it because it was made before they were even born. Wow! And were they pretty impressed with the with the Rick uh, characters? Uh. <laughs> yeah. They, they were impressed with all the acting because, I mean, we had some legit actors in that thing. And Penrose, can, can you give us a little about Penrose? Is that the one where it's your birthday or is that a different one? No. So this was like 20 years ago we made it. Um, and the concept is uh, Reed's character owns a cabin out on the water, keeps getting broken into. So he hires this local sort of unstable guy to guard it for him. Well, the guy who's guarding it ends up like, kidnapping and beating the living shit out of the robber and then reed gets there loses his i don't want to give away too much spoilers but it escalates and all of a sudden reed and his poker buddies are all um it, it almost plays out a bit like uh, 12 angry men it turns into this conversation about what do we do do we go to the cops no we've done too much we'll get in trouble do we kill him we can't kill him and so that that's a huge thrust and there's little side plots wow. going on but it, it was mostly improvised off a loose script and so we would shoot an entire scene and i would shoot it kind of documentary style just following people around and stuff and then we would give them notes on okay we like that change that do more of this how about we put this here and then we would shoot every scene like four or five times and then try to edit them all into like a frankenstein version of the scene which was a nightmare but turned out pretty cohesive i feel like and we put out a a casting call and and got real actors really Yes, one has been in in a bunch of movies that were uh, released and distributed. Um, his name is Paul, too. Where do you put out a casting call? Website. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And so they came. And Eric, I didn't tell you this. I don't know if Monica did. I think I saw it. I know you did. <laughs> we were watching the, the To Tell the Truth reboot. Yeah, she put a clip of it up oh on my uh, Marco Polo. God. Yes. One of the really one of the really good actors that that were in the cast uh is a working actor in in LA. No way. All right, you got to put Penrose up on YouTube then. Yep. I'll put it up there. 19.99 a stream. Well, Reed's gone. We- <laughs> Bye Reed. <laughs> It was fun, too, when we were done with it. We rented out a big theater at a local community college that had, like, big screen oh. and 300 seats. Oh, there's the, oh. the Next time I see you, next time I see you guys, you get you get an autographed copy. Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, so well, tell me, just you, describe the copy. Do you recognize, Is that, you? recognize that Letterman's jacket? Yeah. yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. So you, describe you this. You, you're on there. What are you doing with your hand? What are you gesturing? I can't tell. You're going to have to just describe it to me. It's... It's low def. Oh, okay. uh, oh, oh! I've got. I think I've got my my arm around my girlfriend there. Ah. Yeah, yeah. That's her little head, right, right there. And uh, oh. and there's deleted scenes and bloopers and commentary tracks wow. and stuff on there. Awesome. This is there's the uh, there's the robber after after oh, he was Jesus. beaten beaten badly. He looks like a robber. 
Yeah, so we did a big premiere of it with like 300 seat theater. A bunch of people came. We had we sold posters, and I had a, a like deluxe version of the DVD that had even more special features. And it came. I don't know if you noticed on the front, but the guy's got like a bloody pillowcase over his head. So we made these tiny little bloody pillowcases that the special edition one came in so you could take your DVDs home in it. It was like a two DVD set. Oh my goodness. Yeah. We yeah, really missed, some, we really missed out that we didn't know him back in the day, mm-hmm. you know, where he had all this creativity and <laughs> just applying his creativity in other ways now. Yeah. It's before, um, high def cameras though. Yeah. So it's a little sad that way. And there's no way to sharpen it up. I don't think, um, Oh, the tagline tagline on the cover here is you can't send a man to help. You can only take him with you. Oh, let's go back to that Proust question. Proust, I want to say Proust. Reed, what's your uh, version of hell? Having to earn money uh, through uh, through unfulfilling tasks. Mm-hmm. So prior to therapy. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty bad. How about you? This is kind of in jest, but last night, Evelyn couldn't sleep, and so she came into our bed with us. Well, actually, right before that, I think we put her back down, and then she kept crying. And then Izzy, our, like, 16-year-old, what's she, a Jack Russell Chihuahua mix, she hacks over and over and over again, and she never hacks anything up. Um, but with Evelyn's crying on the monitor and Izzy's hacking, I just looked over at Dave and I said, this is, this would be hell for me. Like, just this. <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, I don't like the dog all that much too. So it just like adds, I just want to strangle it. But, Paul. Paul. <laughs> so, so for me, it's the opposite of that. It would be to be alone in the cave by myself in the darkness for eternity. Aww. That would be hell. Lovely. So yeah, I would love so that lovely. myself. <laughs> yeah, isn't it funny how different people are? Yeah. 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 So, Eric, you're an extrovert, right? Yeah, very much yeah. so. Yeah. So you would... Yeah, I, I, I don't think I've ever had the thought like, oh, I wish I had some alone time right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. COVID has forced me to have huh. some alone time, and um, I'm getting better at finding solitude alone, but... Um, it's the only silver lining of this whole COVID thing is I have found some solitude out in nature and, and being by myself more often. But Suzanne, uh, you just had dinner with. Yes, I, I did. It was a lovely dinner with her and Vince, and we shared many stories. Uh, <laughs> yes, about Vince grew up in New Jersey like me, and uh, yeah. we had many similar experiences. Um, with school and other things so you know we've really found some additional common ground and you know suzanne not being from new jersey uh you know has a different opinion uh of some things so it's just it was really a a great dinner and it was really it was really great i hadn't seen suzanne uh in person in a long time and so uh it, it really lifted my uh Lifted my spirits. I also saw my friends Sarah and Louise out in Woodby Island too, uh, and they, they put me up. They have a separate bunkhouse, so it's nice and safe. And I had a really great time. They beat me handily in bocce, um, mm. but I had a great, great time with both both groups of people. Um, you know, safely. 
And Suzanne was on our podcast um, a, a few episodes ago, just so people yeah. know what we're talking about. And she- and she mentioned that that uh, the uh, the pandemic has really taken its toll on you, Paul, in terms of uh, getting your your extrovert strokes. Yes, I've been limited yeah. to uh, an extremely small group of people, as well as had a few uh, COVID scares. You know, where other people were exposed, and I might have been exposed, uh, but it turns out I so far have dodged those bullets. But yes, I've missed a lot of my friends. Uh, well, speaking of bocce, back to games, Eric, I think I hold my own against you in bocce and cornhole. I was going to say cornhole for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cornhole whisperer. What's the trick? Really? Yeah, you are good at What's that. What's the cornhole trick? Focus. Focus? Who knew? Yeah. Yeah. There's no anything yeah. with the wrist with the, with the, with the, the beanbag or no, anything? N- no, it's, it's about being one with the hole. Really? Well, my friend mm-hmm. Sarah and Louise, they used to have a tournament out in Woodby Island, and I never did very well. I usually got axed out in the first couple rounds, but they have home court advantage. So, mm-hmm. but you know, mm-hmm. so maybe we'll have to have a little one, and you can uh, show us your expertise in, in this. I'd love to, mm-hmm. absolutely, uh, Eric. There's a there's a family movie planned. Uh, yeah, we have it on the calendar. Uh, and this one will be another, well, the ambition is to have it be another full length movie. My kids are old enough now. I feel like I have a little time I can dedicate to it. So we're going to go out for like a Friday through a Monday and just try to shoot the whole thing. And the the way I'm kind of working around all the editing time that it would typically take is that we're going to shoot it as a series of long one take shots. So we'll just do a lot more planning up front to get all the coordinating down so that I don't have to sit here because, you know, editing one minute of a movie takes four hours and I just, I can't dedicate that much time to it. But I think if we can pull it off, we can get kind of full, full movie without all the effort. Afterwards. One minute Are you is shooting full, on it? Hold on, hold on, hold on. That wasn't an exact ratio, <laughs> no, but, but it's close. It's close, I'm sure. I mean, that's incredible. But, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when we did Penrose, it was easily a couple hundred hours wow. of editing, if okay. not more. I mean, it's it was it was massive. Like, oh, I was doing twenty-hour days, wow. seven days a week, because I was young and I could dedicate that kind of time to it. Because I would sit there and, I mean, just like very small minutia of like the audio between two clips and stuff, and especially the way we shot it, where you're taking these scenes that are not actually cohesive together and trying to make it look like it is just took forever and i would sit there on just like one little cut for an hour just scrubbing it taking a frame off lowering this audio or i would take audio from a third take the you know the visual from one take and then another it it was it was a massive effort and there's no way i could do that again so i'm trying to i'm trying to cheat a little bit and just do it where i just have to like put this shot next to this shot next to this shot and call it good are you shooting on an iphone or what i haven't decided yet greta's got a really my daughter's got a really nice like um slr camera camera Digi- yeah. dslr yeah and so it'll look better if we shoot on that but there's a lot of like really cool cheesy video effect apps you can uh. use on the iphone for like special effects that it's easier to do while you shoot it so I haven't decided yet. Well, let us know. I'm uh, definitely interested in what you choose to do it and how you do it. 
yeah, then we'll get that one up on YouTube too. Whatever it ends up being, it might be a disaster, but that'll at least still be entertaining. It's always easy for me because my target audience is just my relatives who are also the people in the movie. So they love it. If it's terrible, they love it because it's hilarious to watch, you know, each other act terribly. If it's good, then it's, wow, hey, this thing actually turned out good. So I, I can't really lose one. And when are you going to start uh, the process? This is the end of June, I think. It's like a weekend, the end of June. We got, I think we're up to like 20 plus people that have already said they're going to be out there. We have a, a loose outline of the plot. There's going to be a lot of plot. It's sort of a Reservoir Dogs kind of thing Ooh. where people are going to go do some sort of criminal thing. That's the first part, and then it goes terribly, and the second part is the fallout from how awful it went. When Eric was training to be a, a police officer, he used to practice on us. He, he would do uh, sobriety tests on us. He would do traffic stops on us. I think he tried to handcuff me once, and I my shoulders are so decrepit that I, I, I couldn't... Uh, I couldn't handle it. And so I, yeah, with this, yeah. the sobriety thing we did, a, it's called a wet lab where you just have people get drunk. And so they're getting progressively drunk throughout the night. So I could practice all the DUI stuff. And so I had like 10, 15 of my relatives out there and they're going for hours and like, no one is getting even near a 0.08. Like they're all 0.04, 0.05. And I've seen these people just get destroyed at family events. I'm like, why, why are you guys not getting drunk for me? I really need you to get drunk for this. And then one of my cousins just, I don't know what she drank or whatever, but she got totally hammered. I got my good test and then it didn't go well Aww. for her for the rest of the night. <laughs> who, who was that? I don't remember. Uh, I'm going to say this wrong and they're going to get mad. I'm pretty sure it was Leave who got sick and then Savannah that took care of her. Okay. God, if I'm getting that backwards or wrong, I apologize okay. to both of them, but... So was it just stand on yeah. one foot, touch your nose, or give me the sobriety test? Yeah, I, I don't even remember yeah. now because it's been so long since I've had to do it. But yeah, it's the yeah he stand on one leg, heel, walk heel on a straight toe, line. Straight yeah. line. He he could see our eyes jittery uh, oh, by, yeah. by making us track his finger. Oh yeah, that's yeah. Right. I, that's yeah. If you track it, what to the left, it'll jitter. If you're yeah, oh. yep. Yeah. Just to the left, not to the right? Well, either either sort. Okay, no, okay. Right. Both ways. And I think the they do it up and down also. And if you're jittery up and down, it means you're really drunk. <laughs> okay. Correct. But like I said, it's been a long time. And now we now we just do uh, warrants for blood. So you just write a warrant, take their blood. Oh, really? It tells you they're drunk. It's a lot easier, yeah. I think some people still do the test. But like if I, for some reason, had to go out there and do one, I, I wouldn't remember how to do those. So I would just get someone's blood and you do arrest them and take them to the hospital to get their blood or yeah sometimes at the jail they'll have people who are certified okay. or whatever to pull blood there so you either go to the hospital or you go to so if you don't do any tests it's just your word that they're impaired yeah so it would be the driving you know the speak i mean because you're still going to see them speak and try to stand and you know you you go there and they pull their credit card out and sell their <laughs> license and can't get a sentence out like yeah. typically you can tell but uh and that's why people always give the advice don't don't take the test like any lawyer is going to tell you don't take those just refuse the test mm -hmm. um because the blood's the most yeah, blood's the really most mean. accurate way anyway right and so yeah so yeah just go get the blood test and it's you're either guilty or innocent based on the blood test 
Well, you surprised the whole family when you when you announced that you were going to try to uh, be a police officer. And then immediately, once we got used to that idea, we said, well, you will be a detective in record time. And you said, and this was so funny, uh, no, 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 I don't want to be a detective. That's just a bunch of paperwork. And we all thought, man, he usually is so honest. That's a complete no, 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 no. lie. <laughs> no, for the record, and I'm currently in this position right now, I, I'm not a real detective. Like, my unit is very different than the detective unit. Um, I still don't want to do that. And I still say I don't want to go over there because it's just a bunch of paperwork and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so I, I am very fortunate that okay. I'm not on that unit i don't have to wear the button up and i don't huh. have this stack of robberies and stuff i have to deal with so uh it, it's still true maybe someday i'll change but 10 years into it and i still am terrified of the paperwork boredom of being so a there's detective. so you i mean your title is detective though yeah but you're not in the detective unit what uh, explain that no so we have a property detective unit which is like frauds and auto thefts and stuff we have a persons which is murders robberies assaults that kind of stuff and then i'm in what's called the special investigations unit and it sort of changed over time it began sort of as like a vice narc unit narcotics unit um it's really morphed like we, we don't do any drug cases anymore and so what i what i personally do now is almost exclusively sex trafficking cases and but it's changed over time like there was a period of time when i was doing all like gang stuff but the the fun part of it or like i said i always feel bad saying it's fun but the, the challenge of it that i like is that my cases are all really complicated a lot of moving parts over a long period of time like if it's a robbery and someone like comes and robs you of your phone like that's just very finite it happened you just kind of like that's the paperworky boring thing there's not a lot of creativity to it um so i enjoy these much more complicated puzzly ongoing type investigations which i'm fortunate enough to get to do and it's not a lot of i mean i still obviously have a lot of paperwork but it's not just that mundane you know i'm just sort of filing stuff and not not feeling like i, I contribute that much if i was doing that sort of more traditional detective do you work. find yourself uh impressed by at how creative and innovative um these different kind of crime rings or sex, tra sex trafficking crimes are no, and not not typically. It's almost the oh. opposite. I mean, and part of that is it's kind of a cliche, but like we don't catch the smart ones. Gotcha. So I'm sure there's some very complicated stuff. And I've heard about cases that like the FBI has done. But the type of stuff that, you know, we deal with just being at a, a city police department tends to be not the most sophisticated people. Um, I, I had one case where there was this cartel run restaurant and this big elaborate thing and that one was interesting because people had tried for years to get this place shut down and arrest people and you know they would arrest someone kind of on the low level and work their way up the top and if they got anywhere near the guy who was at the top they would be no one would cooperate they'd be like nope throw me in prison you know i'm not <laughs> i'm not going against that yeah. guy and so we had to try to find creative approaches to go after them and get them out of town. So that that was super mm. fun. One of the quotes I, I can remember that you said when you were doing an investigation, you were trying to find somebody. If you wanted to find somebody, go ask their ex. 
they'd, they'd yeah, be yeah. happy to, to, <laughs> to show you everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get a lot of information from exes, for sure. One of the, this is not directly related, but one of the like coolest little, oh, that's such a clever thing that I gave myself a pat on the back for, I remind me of. So we had a car like take off from us, you know, 150 miles an hour on the freeway. We lost it and we're trying to catch up and we're trying to figure out where it went. And it, you know, it's just kind of a normal free. It's like, it's not like I-5, but it's uh, it was like 509 mm-hmm. or, you know, something like that. A lot of little exits. And so as I'm driving, I'm like, God, they could have taken any of these exits. And I had the thought, oh, you know what is at the end of every one of these exits is somebody holding up a sign and they're going to notice if some car just went past them, you know, like a bat out of hell. So I just pulled off at every exit and just asked the person who was standing there with a sign, hey, did a car come screaming by here? Found the guy who's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, and he described the car to me. He's like, it went that way, it went that way. And so we were able to go and then start circling around because they had got off the freeway, but then kind of ducked in somewhere. And then we found the car there. I so. love as far as like who you ask. Is... I love that you're kind of a mind because, yeah, all I think is there's uh, so many possibilities that my mind just like shuts down and I go, fuck it. And I would just want to turn around and go back to the station. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's that's the type of stuff that. I super enjoy it's just like i said you got the puzzle the car disappeared and you know obviously we're not going to catch up with i mean it's it's gone and so then you start to you know okay what could it have done it could have kept going on the freeway you know so we're alerting you know state patrol hey be on the lookout for this type of car speeding we're you know alerting seattle or whoever's up there hey if you got people in the area just look for it coming off but then you know what else you know who else could be there that might see something what is your belief, Eric, about locked phones? Do you think law enforcement should should have a backdoor to phones? So I won't give you like a hard belief just because I haven't studied everything about it enough. So I never want to speak like I'm an expert. In my personal experience, I know I have saved children with being able to get into people's phone. Like it's an essential, the decision isn't, you know, just privacy, not privacy, you know, whatever it, you know, it is, you know, are, are do we want to kind of live in more of a wild west kind of thing where, you know, crap, because, you know, in, in the modern day, huge percent of our serious crime, like our shootings, our murders, you know, kidnappings, sex trafficking stuff, like we don't solve those cases without phone technology stuff. And so, you know, we can have the debate about, you know, what's more valuable. So I'm not necessarily taking a side, but I'm saying from what I do, it wouldn't be done without it. And so, you know, whether the the privacy concern of an individual who, and and obviously I can't just like get in someone's phone, you know, there's the steps I got to get a judge to read it, approve it, um, you know, and they are getting a lot more strict about what we can ask to look at. Because in the past, you know, if you if you've got probable cause to look into someone's phone, you just get a look into their whole phone because you don't know where the evidence is going to be. And now I've got a very narrow window. And so where this kind of comes into play, we do a lot of cases where we do sort of like the to catch a predator stings and we try to get pedophiles. And so if I do a sting and I get online and I pretend I'm a 13 year old girl and I get a guy, you know, trying to come and. I arrest him. 
write a warrant to get on his phone. In the past, I could have said, hey, I want to look at, you know, a little bit back in time on this guy's phone to see if he's harmed other children, you know, real children and not just an undercover thing. And now I can't that, you know, the judges are saying, nope, you get the day of your crime, you know, which means that if there is information in there about a real kid, we're never going to find it now. And so that's the trade off on, yes, that protects that person's privacy that I can't see, you know, all the other personal things about their life. But it also, the trade-off is, because I've had cases, multiple cases, where we do the undercover thing, I look in their phone, I was like, oh, here's real children, and we go find those children and, you know, make the cases on those. So it's, it, it is a trade-off. And so for me, taking that completely away from the police, and, you know, and this is talking about the stuff we deal with, obviously, you know, terrorism and stuff is its own category of privacy versus security trade-offs, which, you know, I don't deal with and so i don't know a lot about it is this a, a state law that's changed or what as far as the phones? as far as how, not going back be, before the date yeah so it's it's case law and there's some there's not a lot of u.s supreme court case law on phones yet and, and they tend to be a lot more lenient on what we can do the washington state supreme court like our, our privacy laws and our constitution are a lot stricter than the national stuff so we're we're a lot more limited on what we can do, which is always kind of interesting when I go take a training out of state and I'll be in even California, but for sure, like I go to Texas or something like that. And they'd be like, yeah, you just do this, 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 this. And we're like, yeah, we can't do any of that. You know, they just record people's phone calls, you know, without any kind of order. Like for me to be able to record a phone call with someone is a huge, uh, like I have to have a lot of solid information. I have to know for sure that, that's what is going to be being talked about. I have to be very specific about who's going to, you know, what, where I'm going to be when I record it. And, you know, it's, it's very regulated. And, and if you were to like overstep any of those different regulations, just, I don't know, um, just a mistake. What are some of the repercussions that can fall on you? So, okay. This is me speaking as myself and I'm not speaking for my department and I'm not going to name my department around here, but I'm gonna give you the honest answer. Shit, nothing would oh, happen to okay. me. Like if you took, if you turn on the news, you know, I, I can basically murder someone and nothing's going to happen to me. I mean, and that, you know, you see it out there and that's very true in the sense that, you know, yeah, for sure. If I accidentally recorded something, but if I intentionally did it, you know, th I might get the tiniest little slap on a wrist, but the, the protections that police have, you know, between the law and then definitely like with the unions is immense. Okay that you know you know if i got on here and i said hey i work at, at this certain police department and my chief or my boss or someone is an idiot i'll probably get in trouble but if i go out there and violate the shit out of someone's rights and stuff like that i, yeah. I will 100 percent be absolutely right. fine which is obviously what this big national conversation is about trying to fix that huh. any prediction on how the george floyd uh, verdict is going to come down no, I, I would I would never, ever try to predict a jury. It's just so random. Mm -hmm. You just yeah. yeah, I mean, you just all, all you have to do. And I've talked to defense attorneys a lot and they're like, all you have to do is confuse one person. Just do a lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of this. Just get one person on that jury who is confused and is like, yeah, I have a doubt. Yeah, I'm constantly yeah. shocked both ways. Like when people get convicted, I'm like, man, I can't believe the jury agreed. And then when they. Oh, yeah, I can't even guess. Mm -hmm.
So, so if you get a warrant to open my phone and it's got this real badass encryption on it, do you have nerds that can get in there and wheel around? Yeah, and there's always a little uh, delay. So like Apple will come out with a new iPhone and there's a little delay while our nerds try to figure out what their nerds did to keep us out. Um, but so like right now, I think we can get into just about everything. Maybe not the very newest iPhones. Um, I had a case recently where I had a like a Galaxy S9 Plus, which is apparently a fairly new phone. And it was one we couldn't get into. So it's just sitting there in evidence. And then our, our nerd came to me like two weeks ago. I was like, oh, hey, if we buy this expensive piece of equipment, we can crack in your phone. So then, you know, we just went to our bosses and explained the case. And they're like, yeah, it's worth it. And so we got into the phone. All right. Yeah, there's, soft, there, there's software and hardware, uh, you know, ways of getting into all that stuff. Having done business planning for a white hat hacker company myself. There's definitely possibilities on how to get into anything. It's just a matter of how long it's going to take and, and what the trade-off is. and you know. Yeah, and, and we'll write warrants to put people's fingers on the phone or hold it up to their face to get oh, the biometrics. Oh, wow. Um, you know, there's, that's not always as good because just the way the machine works that downloads it, you, you need the password for that part of it. But we have extremely high success rate of we arrest the person – we have a conversation in the back of the car. Their phone is there. Like, hey, before we take you to jail, do you need to call anyone? Do you need any numbers out of your phone? And they're like, yeah. And we're like, okay, well, I can't hand you your phone because, you know, you could delete evidence. What's your password? Oh. So all the fanciest machines wow. and hackers and stuff in the world are not nearly as good as just asking somebody, what's your password? Wow. There it I is. I love that <laughs> oh, yeah. inside, inside baseball stuff. Well, sitting around the campfire with you in the summers back back in the before times, we would always get lots of great stories from you about foot chases and um, the criminal mind. Yeah, over time, it gets harder and harder for me because people are always, you know, tell us a story, tell us a story, and... Like my threshold for what feels like an interesting story for me, like gets so raised. <laughs> I remember so clearly, like when I was first out there like, and I would call my mom every day after work and like everything was so, oh my God, I had this shoplifter and blah, blah, blah. And like just everything was so exciting. And I so clearly remember this one day I'm talking on the phone and she's like, anything exciting happened at work today? And I'm thinking through my head and you know, I've already told her a thousand stories by this point like no not really like nothing interesting happened it's like well i mean there's this one call where this guy came at me and pulled this big knife at me and blah 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 it's like but you know nothing really happened and i arrested him or whatever and i it, and i kind of stopped from it i was like wait a minute, i've gotten to the point in my career where someone pulling a big <laughs> butcher knife and coming at me with the intent of stabbing me with it is no longer an interesting story wow and now you know so far into it i'm to the point where like nothing nothing feels like and i'm always surprised when i tell people stories that just oh hey this is a really boring one and then people think it's so interesting but do you see a therapist yeah and so when i was gonna start this career and i had a long conversation with my wife about going in this into the career part of it was all right well you got to find a therapist right now and just start with one um and i actually kept the same one for like the first eight years of my career and then uh we had someone from my department 
got killed at work and I went in there and like just felt this real disconnect that I didn't feel like she could understand or it just, I don't know that it just, it created this gulf. And so I left her and didn't go to anyone for a while. And then I found a new one, but it was during COVID and the zoom therapy did not work for me. I hated that. So I plan on once more people are doing in-person stuff, trying to find somebody. Um, but it's going to be someone kind of specific, I feel like. And especially, you know, now at this point in my career, like some of the stuff I deal with, like I kind of want someone who maybe understands more specifically the stuff right. that I'm yeah. dealing with as opposed to more general. That makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting how you uh, sort of have to deal with all this stuff and then you're expected to sort of go to the family reunion and the barbecue. And even though some guy just pulled a knife on you, you're sort of expected to... You know, just show Have it all together. Event. Yeah. 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 And there's, there's definitely a, a challenge with connecting with people a lot, like with my family and stuff, like we have so much history and stuff that it can kind of go and just sort of relax into it. And it tends to be pretty good, but I definitely notice it with like meeting new people for the first time or, you know, we'll do stuff pre COVID with like other parents of kids our age and, you know, of course, you know, kind of the wives go hang out and I'm hanging out with these dads and they're, you know, all, all of them work for Microsoft or Google or whatever. And they're talking about whatever the newest operating system and this kind of stuff. And it's like really hard for me to connect with people sometimes when because it, it just feels like such a different yeah, reality. It is. Um, I had gone to a training one time and they talked about people in the military and coming back and just what that kind of culture is and the team that they're, I mean, there's, there's so many intricacies about, you know, the culture of people in the military and how, you know, we're, we're on the same team. We're going to protect each other. And then you, you enter society and, you know, people are out for themselves. It's very independent. And it, there's just a, a big chasm that's created between, you know, what you, I mean, it sounds similar kind of to that militaristic of like, hey, I'm not going to, you know, talk bad about the captain um, or anybody else, but it's because it's, it's this us against them sort of a thing. Yeah. And one of the big things for me is like, when I'm not at work, I'm such a different person than at work. Like a lot of my coworkers, you know, they wear their guns everywhere they go and they think, you know, whether at home at work, they think someone's always about to kill them and they're just, they are like being a cop is their identity, whether they're at work or not. You know, for me, when I'm outside of work, I try to be very far from that world and, you know, don't want anything to do with violence and all, you know, yeah. just that's so not a part of me. I want rainbows and unicorns and happiness <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And so, but to do, try to do that switch on a daily basis is definitely one of the biggest challenges especially you know raising kids and you go to work and you deal with whatever you deal with that day and then you but when you walk in that door all yeah, that has your dad put right. aside and it's just that yeah constant bouncing back and forth is I, I feel like i'm getting a handle on it better now but it was one of the biggest struggles of this whole thing is I, it almost felt like i was going crazy just because of that you know, switching back and forth and it was so compartmentalized 
When was that? When was that the most difficult for you? It kind of built over time and it probably peaked been a process. I mean, the last two to three years, I feel like I sort of really hit probably the darkest place, you know, and definitely was feeling like, I don't know if I can keep doing this for, I've got like another 10 years left, but then within the last year or so, you know, I've worked on a few things and sort of got to a better place where I feel like I can mentally process it a little bit better. But I, I, I mean, I'm guessing it's going to be a constant challenge. Yeah, I think therapists too uh, go through that process too, where they, you know, deal with some tough stuff, you know, childhood sexual abuse, rape, and some other things that they deal with. They have to find a way to cleansing themselves when they go home to their family and sort of leaving, you know, their clients, you know, issues. Even though they have a lot of empathy for it, just have to, you know, find a way of some ritual to cleanse them. Uh, of of sort of some of that emotion but I'll, I'll say this too i mean i worked with um my supervisor was a forensic psychologist and the people that he knew and then like we would sit down to dinner together and i met a couple other forensic psychologists and they worked with um like violent uh sexual predators and to see i mean i was sitting next to dinner with a guy who had just come from like He was doing some testing or doing some sort of interviews and he was physically, he'd been doing that. He's been doing this for 20, 30 years. I mean, they're all not violent sexual predators, but every once in a while these cases come in and my supervisor chose not to do it. His wife said, you can't do them anymore. Or you, I'm, you know, we, this isn't going to work because it just took such a toll on him. And same with, um, the gentleman that I was sitting next to at dinner, listening to him, like he said, this, this is my last one. I, I, I can't do it. Um, so I guess, I mean, sometimes not just being able to compartmentalizing, but knowing when that line is, you have to, you know, call it. Yeah. And I kind of had a almost opposite experience of that recently. Part of, I think what got me through the other side of it is I leaned into that a little bit because I, I started dealing with the worst of the worst cases. Um, and it really messed with my head. And so instead of pulling away from it, I went to the detective sergeant that assigns them. I said, give, give them all to me. Like, give me all of them. Cause if I can, cause if I can get okay through this, like if I can survive this and if I can figure out how to see these things and experience these things and deal with these things and be mentally okay, then I can probably handle every other aspect of my career. And so I, you know, just sort of, you know, I think it's similar to, you know, trying to deal with other um, trauma type stuff, you know, where to actually like just face it, just face it head on and get to that place. And because part of it is like, there's a lot of guilt because I'm sitting here and I'm fine. Like, you know, who am I to like feel terrible about this when it's, it's happening to other people. Like, and so I, I just kind of felt like there must be a way, like, you know, this isn't actually happening to me. You know, I'm just there trying to deal with it, to help people, to hold people accountable. And so through that process, I got to the point where, and I don't know if it's going to fade, but right now it's a lot, lot easier for me to deal with the, the really dark stuff. Um, 
but it but it comes out like it just you know it definitely at some point in time and I'll, and I'll like intentionally induce it like when I know like I need to like have a breakdown like I'll you know wait till everyone else is asleep I'll turn off the lights you know either listen to some kind of music or watch something that I know is going to like trigger a very like and you know just sort yeah. of like this periodic like just letting it all go and like feeling it all because then you have to go back to where you just can't yeah feel it that, that much sounds like a really healthy way to deal with it i mean just from an outsider who isn't you and dealing with all of that but it sounds like a very like a conscious way to process it as needed you know yeah for the most part there's probably slightly more alcohol involved in this <laughs> ritual than would be you know keep it classified purely okay, as healthy yeah. but okay. that's, okay. Well, that's but release. That's, it thanks, helps thanks for all the the, the honesty it's known as beverage <laughs> therapy Lots of us yeah. take it occasionally. It's effective. I get discouraged when I hear you talking about uh, rescuing someone who's been trafficked and they have nowhere to go. They're not going to go back to their abusive family. They have no visible means of support other than what they were just doing. Right. And, and, the psychological hold is the bigger part of it. I mean, that's, that's the weird thing is that, you know, when you're talking about sex trafficking, you know, you're talking about people who, you know, are De living devalued. just, yeah, just horrible situations, but someone who's just straight up torturing them and, um, you know, making them do all these things yet they are so attached to that person. And so when we come there, you know, and we're like, you know, we, you know, we always jokingly say, rescue we don't rescue anybody you know it's not like people are chained up we bust in the door and they're like oh my god you saved me yeah. you know, tell us to fuck off and he didn't do anything he's you know blah blah blah. and so you know and, and that's part of the reason like those investigations are so complicated is because you know in in most cases you kind of have the you know perpetrator of the crime trying to get you to not solve the crime and those you have the victim of the crime very actively trying to thwart your efforts to solve the crime and then you have to build these relationships over a very long time and just slowly build trust and slowly work through things. And I mean, it's, it's, it is a long-term project to try to get someone even remotely close to a place where they might be ready to get out of that life. And theoretically you're trying to protect the future victims, but yeah, I mean, definitely trying to get the current victims out also mm -hmm. i mean it's it's a very low success rate mm -hmm. and even when people are temporarily out they go back yeah but that's the goal but yeah for sure like the people who are perpetrating these crimes are so insanely dangerous and do it to so many people that you know trying to stop them from doing it is a huge yeah. part of it well i know there's an unending supply of customers but what about the uh, the traffickers? Don't they just backfill when you when you take one off the street? There's two more waiting to take their place. Yeah, I mean, definitely, like a lot of crime, it's not an easy solvable um, thing. I mean, you know, like you you have like a serial killer or something. Then yeah, if you take that serial killer out, you very clearly stopped that spree from happening. Most other, you know, you arrest a robber or, you know, someone who did a gang shooting or, you know, something like that. Yeah, there's there's more like we're not we're not close to a, a cure for 
crime by any means. Do you deal with money laundering and things like that too? Or is that part of your area or do you rely on other people to do that? If it's like a legit money laundering case, we'd probably get like the FBI to help out on it. You know, just the city resources aren't big enough that it's something super complicated. Um, so you really yeah, don't, you like, try to just end the sex trafficking without the financial aspects of, or is that part of the investigation too? Yeah. And these low, like a lot of stuff, you know, that we deal with in my unit is very like street okay, level, cash. you know, it's just a guy who, you know, they call it turning her out, gets a woman to go out there or girl have sex for money and give them all the money. Like that's, you know, that that's kind of the bread and butter. I did sort of a more complicated one on the massage parlors. I don't know if you see when you drive around those neon yeah. signs and stuff. Yeah. Those are all brothels basically. Um, and there, there had been some attempts at doing like real high level complicated, you know, chase the money up the top, get the people running them. And it just, the sophistication of the criminal organizations that run those is way beyond what a local department could do. So I kind of came up with this plan of, okay, I'm not going to solve this, you know, trafficking from Asia into massage brothel problem sitting here at my little police department, but I can create like a no-go zone in our city. And so I did kind of a complicated investigation over several months and then did like a simultaneous hit on all of them shut them down. And then I coordinated with like our permit department and our city council where they pulled all their permits and then they passed a new law that made it really hard to open one of these. And this was a few years ago and we've, we've had no more since. And there was just a report that came out that there's four jurisdictions in the country that have created this like no go zone forum. And it's like, I can't remember. It's like Washington, D.C., San Jose, like big cities. And then my little city was on there, too, on the list. So that's wow, kind of satisfying to see well it there. Well done. I, I heard about these massage those places parlors everywhere. from working. I mean, I was a poker dealer for 10 years and worked in Burien and Kent and uh, Renton. And so um, I knew people that would frequent those <laughs> those places. So Yeah, and they're, they're just getting more and more popular because for the most part, it's not enforced or you know it's, it's sort of an open secret right. that's out there and th and this recent mass shooting uh didn't the didn't the perpetrator say that he was a a sex addict and he couldn't take it anymore that's what i, I think so yeah i haven't you know read in depth on that but just the little bit i've heard is that I think there might be some connection that those you know could have been these types of yeah places. the reporting has been terrible on it because it's so it's such a political idea yeah for a variety of reasons the perpetrator and as well as the uh the uh, whole thing yeah these are these are asian establishments in most cases right mm -hmm. yeah and it, it's kind of interesting because when i was brand new there was a little bit more variety in who was running these and now it's it's almost exclusively asian massage places mostly at least around here it's almost all from china um, and the little bit i did in my investigation it's really interesting because you know it's it's they're all connected you know once you go up high enough and there's very specific route where the girls and women get shipped over to this one city in california because like all the paperwork i kept finding comes back to that one city and then they just you know there's just this route that they get shipped so each place has new girls all the time 
um, you know, one of, one of the, you know, heartbreaking parts of the investigation, you know, the way I was doing it, I was just trying to shut these places down. And so, but I'm having these like very close contacts with these people that I know I can't help. And even on some of the bigger like FBI cases I've done, there's zero talk, like the, the women will not ask for help, will not say anything, will not do anything. Like I've never, no one's cracked that code on like how to help any of the people because the thing you know, on the other side that's compelling them to do this is way scarier, way more powerful than whatever, you know, little government agencies trying to help them. But so I would have these interactions with these women. I remember one, when we went in there and we were doing like a license check and she ran, like just took off and managed to find her and, and having to talk to a translator on the phone, trying to convince her to, to talk to me, to, you know, let me, cause we had resources with the FBI. I mean, at this level, you know, you, you can get the different visas for, you know, being a trafficking victim. And like, we legitimately, you know, we could put them up in a place to stay. No one would take us up on it. And she, she just didn't want to talk. And, but I managed to get her phone number and I can't remember. I think I put it in her phone or somehow the next day I get a call from her. So then I'm scrambling to get an interpreter on the line and figure out what she's saying. And she's, trying to explain to me where she's at like she's scared they they took her away and they're going to ship her off somewhere else and they're she's trying to explain to it but she has no idea any you know she's never been in washington state let alone what city she's in i'm you know what do you see you know what did you see when you went there what did you see you know and just desperately trying to figure out where she's at and never could and then never heard from her again and so and she just vanished and there was you know multiple kind of similar things where you just you see these people and you're there and you just want to help so badly and there's just feels like there's nothing you can do and then they're just gone and you know their whole life is just going to be that you know it's going to be 12 hours a day seven days a week in one of those places until they're too old to you know be of use to someone and then i don't know what happens and you were so that. close like that's just got to be so difficult oh, yeah. to swallow like so close yeah and you could see the the fear and terror in her eyes and you know and you know I, and i i deal with that a lot in the sex trafficking cases where you know you give your best pitch and your best trying to connect to people and you can see in their eyes they want to take the help but this other thing you know whether it's the pimp or you know the organization whatever it is has put it in their that, that fear in their head so it's it's so powerful that trying to overcome yeah. it is just so it's difficult. almost like you need to hire one of them and put them in your unit as the as the as the translator and the, right. the one who actually can yeah and so we do have someone who works with us that uh is not a cop and she's an advocate we've had a couple different ones and our first one was actually in the life as a prostitute you know lived through the whole thing got out of it and then she worked with us and so we can take her and we have a new one now with us and we basically tell people like she doesn't work for the police department you can talk to her and tell us to fuck off and we will leave you alone but she's you know can hook them up with shelter and resources and you know there's so many simple things just getting their id card you know working on getting their kids back kicking their addiction you know there's so many hurdles and so we do have someone who can speak you know a little more directly on that and not feel like you know they're gonna be in danger because they're talking to the cops and that's super helpful I wonder if they're worried about their family back home. That's the real threat that they sort of got shipped over there and 
that the consequences of them disappearing will be taken out on their family back back in China or somewhere. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, and just I mean, imagine you're in a country you don't know the language, you don't know yeah. where anything, and some person you know, and you know, when you're dealing with people from other countries, a lot of times, you know, someone in a uniform might mean yeah. something very different to them, right. you know, and they're not at all thinking that you're there to help yeah. them. Um, so yeah, there's a lot a lot of hurdles to get over. What group supplies you with the advocate? Is is it a nonprofit or or so we got a grant um, to hire this position, and then we just put out the ad, or the announcement or whatever, and people applied to it. And so it was a few of us from the police department, and then she works through kind of a social work group. Um, and so they also had input. So she's housed with them, technically works for them. They're the bosses. But if we call her, she can come out and help us. That's great to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it it definitely speeds up the process of that getting that connection with people and getting people to trust us. It, it used to take a lot longer, and now we find it's you know instead of twelve times of dealing with the same person, it's eight. Yeah. You know, which is a huge difference over the course of a lot yeah. of cases. It's amazing what one person can hold, isn't it? Just the amount, I mean, them, but I'm talking about you, Eric. I mean, just the amount that you are still here talking to us and seemingly, you know, I mean, creative and connected and and yet still all that you, I'm just, I don't know, it it blows my mind sometimes what we can handle. Yeah, that's a big part of it for me. And I kind of talked about it earlier. It's just when you sit down with someone who's living it every day. Like, you know, the people I'm talking to are living it. You know, the, you know, the, the women, you know, in these type of cases I'm dealing with have had so much trauma inflicted on them since the time they were very little. I mean, when, once I get to know them and they talk to me about it, it always starts when they're, you know, a very little girl, it just continues, you know, the, the type of traumatic event that if, you know, a person had one of those events in their life, it would, screw them up for their entire life they've had hundreds like i mean it's yeah. incredible and so i definitely keep recentering myself in the sense that i go home and i'm comfortable and i'm surrounded by love and people who care about me like you know yes i'm gonna be sad about it cause i'm an empathetic person but i don't get to be you know I, I don't get to stop functioning just because i heard about it like that just doesn't feel fair to them i guess mm. in a weird way okay. I mean, I have another perspective too, though. I mean, I think sometimes the person, or I don't know, maybe Reed or Paul, you can help me on this, like the form of like psychological trauma, um, like the person who, like if you grew up in a a household where one uh, child gets uh, hit, but you don't, there's still the psychological like, and it can actually be worse because it's not actually happening to you. So um what is that called you guys do you know is it just the the vicarious trauma or that sounds right something like that yeah the therapists that i've dealt with before use that term vicarious yeah yeah, trauma or, or i think there's one other term that they've used yeah and one of the biggest challenges kind of in that department that 
my most recent therapist we really dealt with is like if I'm doing a sex trafficking case and I'm sitting with the victim, yeah, I'm having some of that, right. you know, tra- trauma just dealing with them. When I'm dealing with a case like a child pornography case and I'm dealing with images and videos of just the most horrific, like if you sat there and tried to, like you just can't even imagine like how awful these things are of just torture and abuse and stuff like that. I have no agency to do anything about it. Like, you know, yes, I'm trying to hold the person accountable that has it. But I mean, some of these videos are from 20 years ago, you know, or, you know, or it's just, and so those really were a struggle for me because it's by far the worst stuff I deal with and the most difficult thing. And just, you know, the type of thing that you can't close your eyes because it's just haunting your every, you know, second of your day. But on top of that, you can't do shit about it. And that, that was a, like kind of took that vicarious trauma to a whole different level because there's vicarious trauma and then there's vicarious trauma with no agency right. whatsoever, um, which is a real That's, struggle. I, I guess I would just encourage you if you so just to not minimize. I mean that theirs is theirs and what they've gone through, but also like what you have um, that like just not to minimize it. What you're experiencing. Yeah, no, and that makes, yeah, and that makes sense. And it's a fine line of, you know, because you can just not deal with it and be like, oh, I don't get to feel bad, but, you know, obviously it's there. And so trying to, like, see it and acknowledge it and give yourself that space to feel awful about these things without it destroying you is just, it's just a tight, tight wire act. Yeah, and I know I have a a girlfriend who she's... uh, getting supervision through the forensic psychologist doing the psychology clinical psychology interviews and but she's having to go through all that evidence herself now and and she's describing things to me that she's seen and I don't know what that's like um but I also know like just being there for her and being a support but I know I'll also encourage her to get a therapist and to you know um because this isn't uh that's a lot to hold. That's, I mean, I just couldn't say that it's a lot to hold. Yeah. It, and it, and it is sort of cumulative, like, and that is one thing that I'm really finding, you know, cause when you're new, it's kind of new, exciting. Yeah. It's big, but it, you know, you've only seen one of these terrible right. things. Okay. You've only seen right. two, you've only seen three. When you get into the hundreds or, you know, whatever it is now, thousands, really, if we're talking about images, you know, that it just, it adds up. It does. And there, there's definitely like long-term, scarring from it like I don't I don't feel like I'll ever get back to the place I was before I did this well it's made up it's your reality now I know when I worked with uh, people with sex offenses I mean that was a big part of my world and I was on the treatment side of it um so again it was kind of the aftermath but you know I got to read through the reports and and see a lot of the things and but still um getting out of that the world is different, you know, when you're only seeing, you're not seeing that anymore. It does change how you see the world. You still have that, of course, it's still there, but it's not all of it. Yeah, for sure. Reed, you've been quiet. Well, I'm just so grateful that I, uh, I have an inkling for the darkness of parts of this world that we live in um so i know that that uh that darkness exists uh i i can sort of imagine it but for 
but the world that you live in, Eric, you don't have to imagine it. You've seen it. You've seen that world that I will never see. Uh, and that's, I guess that's why I'm quiet. Yeah. The darkness I deal with in my clients, you know, has to do with, uh, you know, they weren't validated in childhood. They were, they were devalued and unappreciated and neglected and, and abused, but, um, not, not to the extent that, that what we're, what we've been talking about today. Right. They're still dysfunctional. They, uh, you know, they're symptomatic and they're trying to reconcile, uh, what happened to them with, uh, with, uh, they're not deserving it, but it's just, it's just orders of magnitude different. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, that made me think of a case I had recently with this, she's either 14 or 15 year old girl and chronic runaway, got hooked on drugs, was sort of getting trafficked, but sort of getting passed around, like didn't have like a permanent trafficker, but in order to like stay places, you know, she was, she was basically getting raped on a nightly basis. And as she, the more she talked about these different things that happened to her and like and kidnapped and this, and the time she thought she was going to die. And the entire time, like she was f not super emotional about it. Like she was just sort of describing and stuff like that. But then when she started talking about how she can't understand why her mom doesn't like her and like mm. why her mom won't, you know, pay attention to her and that kind of stuff. That's when she got emotional, you know? And so that stuff you're talking about, like even for people who have, you know, gone through horrific things for all of us, that sort of emotional trauma stuff can be some of the absolute hardest. Cause you know, you can get used to, very bad things happening to you like you're you can adapt to it but that lack of like very genuine human connection i don't think that's something that our species can deal without like that's sort of the fundamental thing that we need yeah yeah definitely yeah right i just got there with a client where we were, i was having such a hard time connecting with him and he was having these um just unsatisfying relationships with women. And we were, just this last conversation was about this like middle ground of being understood and that's what all he wants. And it was just this like aha moment for both of us. And um, just, I mean, think about what it's like to be understood, to be seen, to feel like you have value. I mean, nothing. And then this very basic need to not get it. Um, how much that just withers a person into like nothing. Yeah. Attention, appreciation, affection. Well, I can recommend a, a new movie called uh, a promising young woman about uh, a woman who has dropped out of medical school before the movie starts. Now she's a barista and she has this uh, very interesting hobby slash mission in her life and it's not about the uh the monsters that we've been talking about today but a different kind of a different kind of monstrosity i i highly recommend it okay it's 
It is. Uh, it, it, it was at Sundance, I see. Yeah, I don't want to say too much. Okay. Uh, yeah, because we need uh, to. Bo, Bur Bo Burnham is in it, and that's why I, that's what attracted my attention, because I'm a big fan okay. of his. But it asks the question, you know, uh, who are the safe men in the world and who aren't? Mm. Yeah. Do you have anything else that we want to say before we wrap things up? That was very uh, deep as far as your hard work, Eric. So really thankful for everything you do and appreciative of what you do for the community because I know how hard it is just um, imagining the different things that you have to deal with on a daily basis. So just want to say I appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, you have. I always wanted to be a detective, so it was really fun too. Uh, but I've never really talked this much in depth with one, so it was more of like a childhood fantasy thing. So, <laughs> um, to All right. yeah, so to I guess to kind of pick your brain and and see the kind of the game piece of it, and then also just how um, kind of your mind works has been really uh, fun and interesting and. Yeah, but also, on the other hand, um, my heart goes out to you and all that you're having to cope with. Yeah. Thank you. And as a, a side note, if I'm ever on the podcast again, I also was a poker dealer. <laughs> wow. So you? That, I can talk oh, to you about okay. that. Yep. That's great. <laughs> yes, you both. Uh, it's, it's fun to play with both of you because of just uh, how beautiful your hands work. <laughs> I like it's it's been a while since I've dealt but I still have this like claim like I, I think I'm one of the fastest dealers in Washington State I, and so I think my husband every once in a while was like Jacqueline like is that really something to brag about but for me it is it really is <laughs> it, it means more tips <laughs> when you're right. dealing being fast it did yeah I used to hustle get the next hand going <laughs> that's right I can I can attest that she's good at it that's what I can say <laughs> <laughs> I, I have lost my skill. The other day I tried to do, you know, dealing across the table fast. And it <laughs> just was cards just flipping mess. over and off the table. <laughs> yeah, I totally lost it. Well, again, thank you so much for being on our podcast. And, yeah, hopefully come on again. Yeah, be glad. Lots more material to go. Yep, sounds good. Thank you, guys. And once again, Reed shares a great motto for life in general. Be one with the whole. There's a fruit who really knows where his towel is. I hope you had fun today and look forward to seeing you soon.